with these changes that are happening, these dramatic Earth system changes, we have a very limited time to be able to record the Earth as it exists now for future generations. And of course, I begin to realize that LIDAR is one tool that we can use to create that permanent digital record. Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. My guest on the show today is Chris Fisher. He is the founder of the Earth Archive Initiative, which is an incredibly ambitious scientific project which aims to scan the entire surface of the Earth before it's too late. So we're going to get into the details of that in just a minute. But before we do that, I need to say a big thank you to our sponsor, Pictera. If you haven't heard of Pictera before, they are a geospatial platform which lets you build your own data extraction algorithms. The way it works is you have a image data source that you're interested in, in finding objects in. You identify the objects by drawing detailed polygons around them. This creates a training set for the algorithm to run against, test the training set, and then you say go. And Pictera, the platform, goes off and does this at scale. So if that's something you might be interested in, perhaps a good place to start is a podcast episode I recorded with Pictera called Machine Learning and Object Detection for the Rest of Us. We go into a lot more details about how, how the process works and explore a few use cases. And I think this is a fascinating platform. If you're interested, go to pictera.ch, check them out. There'll be a link in the show notes. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Today, we're going to be talking about something called the Earth Archive Project. And that, of course, has something to do with geospatial. But I think before we get started on that, perhaps you could just let the listeners know who you are, what you do, and perhaps how you got involved using geospatial data. Hey, I'm Chris Fisher, and thank you for having me on the podcast, Daniel. I'm Chris Fisher. I'm an archaeologist, and I'm a professor at Colorado State University. I'm also the founder and co-director of the Earth Archive Initiative. I was trained as a traditional archaeologist, so I'm kind of a accidental geospatial person, I guess. I was performing in 2009, I was performing traditional archaeological field work in central Mexico and surveying the landscape, walking across the landscape, recording all of the archaeological features that we find. And we encountered a, what we now know of as a, a city. And we needed a new way to document thousands of building foundations that we were finding at this place. And so we turned to LIDAR. And that was my introduction to the geospatial world. Just out of curiosity, why did you need a new way of documenting these, these building footprints? What, what was wrong with the way that um, people have been doing it for, for years and years? Well, technically speaking, there is nothing wrong with the way that people have been doing it for years and years. And a lot of people still do it that way, but it's really time consuming and it's really slow. And so there were so many building foundations at this site, which we now call Angamuco, and it's in the central Mexican state of Michoacan. And there were so many building foundations at this site that doing it manually, walking across the landscape with teams of people, manually annotating house foundations, would have taken, my estimate at that time was well over a decade. And I'm notoriously impatient. I didn't want to do that. And so I thought, wow, man, there's just, there's got to be a better way to do this. And so we turned to this, this technique called airborne LIDAR. So there was nothing wrong with the way that people were doing it before. It, ju it just wasn't fast enough. At least that's what I, I heard you say. And what was your insight that LIDAR would, would make a massive difference? Well, I, I actually walked down the, 
the hallway to a, a colleague's door, Steve Lease, and I said, dude, there's got to be a better way to do this. Something that's faster, something that's more accurate, something that gives us a visual of what the entire landscape looks like. It's really easy for us to find all of these individual features, but putting the whole picture together is incredibly difficult when you're in an area with complex topography and a lot of housing foundations as that particular site is. And so that's why we thought we'd try this new technique called LIDAR. The chases had another team of archaeologists had just used it to great effect at the Maya site of Karakol. And we thought we should give it a try. We had the resources to do that. We had the money. And we had a company that was willing to actually fly the LIDAR for us, Merrick, out of Denver. And so we did just that. Part of me is thinking you're probably almost exchanging one problem for another because before it was difficult to see the entirety of the site, at least I'm assuming. But now that you can, but with LIDAR, you see everything, right? So you had a whole new problem of filtering the data to actually clean it out so you could see the site. A am I wrong? Well, initially, honestly, before we knew how to, to really wrangle the point cloud data, there was a, a, a few months of, of scrambling to figure out how to do that. The data is at such a high resolution that we are still able to see all of the individual house foundations. And the resolution of the data is so much better that the quality of the data is so much better than what we could do by hand, frankly, that it was kind of a no-brainer to use the LiDAR. But you're right. Being able to see the whole site is, in some respects, a new theoretical problem versus just being able to see the uh, individual features. But the great thing about using that kind of LiDAR data is that once you fly it, everything is recorded in perpetuity. The point cloud data does not degrade like a photograph. So people can always go back and redo your work with LiDAR. And that's not possible using traditional archaeology, traditional survey. So I just want to stay with this idea of using LiDAR to collect archaeological features just for a second here and then move on and talk about the Earth Archive project. And what I'm curious about is that you talked about using it to collect building footprints. So I'm wondering, is this simply a tool for collecting physical features or is it also a tool for analyzing the cultures of these civilizations as well? Yeah, so you know we can see building foundations, we can see site layouts. We can identify where sites are in the landscape. We can identify landscape features, such as roads, agricultural terraces, all of that sort of stuff. The real trick, of course, is connecting that to the actual people that, that made those features. So archaeologists, I mean, archaeology is like a, a crazy science because the people that we study are dead. In an ideal situation, we'd have a time machine and we'd go back and we'd hang out and talk with those people and live with them in the same way that like a cultural anthropologist might learn the language, and then ask them the questions that we want to know about how they organize themselves and how they came to be. But we can't do that, of course, because those people are dead. So we use proxies for their behavior. So in some respects, archaeologists have long used patterns of human land use to get at human behavior. And we've developed all sorts of theoretical mechanisms and ways of thinking about people in the past and artifacts and all of that sort of stuff to get at human behavior. Artifacts are just proxies for human behavior. A building foundation, in many respects, is just another kind of artifact. But it's really difficult to do. That's why we spend so much time in school figuring that stuff out. 
Okay, so we're using LiDAR to collect these uh, amazing detailed point data sets over archaeological sites, and then we're doing some analysis based on that. And your insight was, this was a pretty amazing tool. I can do this really quickly or significantly quicker than I used to be able to do it. And great, what next? What does that have to do with the Earth Archive project? Yeah, so I had the opportunity to get involved with this project that was actually using LiDAR to look for scientifically unknown culture in Central, Central America. And to get to the, to the place to, to sort of field verify LIDAR results that we had seen, we had to enter that place via helicopter. It was incredibly remote. And no modern people live there. There's a lot of evidence that people really haven't been in this place for centuries. And it's the only place, you know, I've done field work all over the world, but it's the only place that I've been where there wasn't any plastic. That's how remote it was. Absolutely amazing place. And it transformed my thinking about the earth, about how fragile the earth is. Because very quickly after we were there, we could immediately begin to see our impacts. A landing zone had to be cleared. The garbage had to be hauled out. So there was garbage that was left there, not by us, by other people. The place had to be protected. It was very fragile. And so immediately, one of those light bulbs appeared over the top of my head. And I was like, oh, my God, this is like a microcosm of what is happening globally with the, with the climate crisis. With these changes that are happening, these dramatic Earth system changes, we have a very limited time to be able to record the Earth as it exists now for future generations. And of course, I begin to realize that LIDAR is one tool that we can use to create that permanent digital record of what the Earth looks like today, what the land surface of the Earth looks like today, to preserve it for future generations. And that's the kind of the kernel of the Earth Archive idea. So you're collecting LIDAR from different geographic areas around the world and just storing it somewhere, or, or is it more than that? Well, so first of all, as an archaeologist, I spend hours practicing digital deforestation, removing vegetation from these point cloud data to see the archaeology below. But of course, all of that information that I'm filtering and, and sort of turning off digitally are the careers of hundreds of other scientists who are studying tree size, tree age, species, all of that sort of stuff, geology, hydrology. I mean, the list is kind of endless. And in that sense, it makes airborne LIDAR records the ultimate conservation records. So our goal is to, first of all, scan the entire land surface of the Earth, 29.2% of it, and to do that within the next decade or so, before the changes that we're experiencing due to global warming and everything else that's happening, before those changes become so dramatic that the earth will have fundamentally changed. And so we have a limited time to be able to do that. Many first world countries are already completing these kinds of scans. Many countries in Europe, a three-dep program in North America, though the resolution isn't as high as what we're asking for. We're focusing our initial efforts on areas that are threatened and that may not have the resources to do these kinds of scans. So, so what are some of those areas and how big are they? What kind of money, capital do we need to, to achieve this? Well, the sizes involved are massive. And some people have called this a, you know, a crazy idea. And honestly, it is. It's a completely crazy idea. But we're facing big problems. And to my way of thinking, we need big solutions. This whole project started over a beer with my colleague. I was sitting there and I'm like, why would, wouldn't it be great if we were able to scan 
the entire surface of the earth. And we laughed about it. And then we had a couple more beers. And then all of a sudden, it didn't seem like such a crazy idea anymore. And so again, you know, I said this, I'll say it again, we're facing massive problems. We need, we need really big solutions. And, and this is one, one potential solution. So to our way of thinking, some of the most threatened areas are the Amazon, Central America, parts of Africa, parts of Southeast Asia. So our initial scan will be to focus on scanning the entire Amazon basin. It, it's massive. It's going to cost a lot of money. We estimate about $20 million. We think we can do it in about five to six years. It's a huge sort of logistical effort. The Amazon encompasses nine countries. It's a lot of permissions, a lot of partnerships, et cetera. We're in the process of building those, and we're ready to begin scanning probably the middle of this summer, 2021. Wow. I mean, this is massive. But, but you're right, like big problems call for, for big, big solutions. So th- this is, is pretty amazing. You talked about a few of the challenges there. You talked about the fact that it's, it's massive. It's going to cost a lot of money. There's all these different countries involved. So in, in terms of actual data collection and data a- analysis, is there any one of those two things which is more of a problem than the other? Is it more difficult to collect the data than to analyze it? So first of all, the biggest problems are not tech problems. Tech problems always have tech solutions. And there's always a group of people that are going to get super excited and want to resolve those tech issues. The biggest problems in doing any kind of field work, and especially with the Earth Archive initiative, with the Earth Archive scans, are the social issues, the political issues. Those are the issues that are taking the most time, frankly. They'll be the most arduous kind of, of issues that we face. On the tech side, and we kind of refer to this as bottlenecks. So interestingly, when we first started this, I really thought that one major bottleneck would be in terms of, obviously, there's some bottlenecks in the time it takes to, to perform the scans. And, you know, and that's resolvable by scaling up or doing whatever. But I thought a huge bottleneck would be in, in terms of computing time, just the size of the files, the, the size of the computers that we need to sort of unpack those data and analyze them. And actually, that's not where the bottleneck seems to be. One bottleneck seems to be with storage and just moving data from you know, the aircraft to the place where it's going to be initially analyzed and processed to the next place. And so we're working with Seagate on a, a new system that they have. It's called their Live System, L-Y-V-E. It's a shuttle data service to actually try to resolve some of that stuff. But interestingly... You know, the bottlenecks are not necessarily where you might logically place them. Yeah, that, that is really interesting. I honestly thought that the problem around storing data w- was completely solved. I want to go back to some of those cultural problems that or challenges that you were talking about before. So we talked about, you know, the Amazon, for example, you know, it has a lot of different countries involved in that. But what about the the sort of cultural problem or challenge around once you've mapped an area, you can see how much it's changed, right? So you can go back and say, oh, you didn't keep your promise, for example. You promised to plant this number of trees or you promised not to clear you know, th- this area of rainforest. Is there, is there any sort of cultural issues around that? Yes. <laughs> and we'll simply do the best we can. So in some respects, being able to see areas of deforestation, for example, you can already do that using satellite imagery. As you probably know, with NP, the scientific arm of the Brazilian Space Agency, 
there was a, a, a big scandal early on in the Bolsonaro administration where an individual that head of MP was fired for pointing out just that, just how much deforestation had occurred, illegal deforestation. We think that we're going to be okay. We're focusing initially on areas that are slightly outside of the deforestation arc within the Amazon. Frankly, we'll see how that goes. We're very sensitive. Another big aspect of the Earth Archive, which I I don't think I mentioned before, is that we want to open source all the data. We want to make it publicly available for, for free, freely available. And to do that, we're building commissions in each of the nine countries to help figure out the best ways to release those data. And on those commissions will be representatives from stakeholder groups, including indigenous groups, academics, NGO members, governmental officials. So we're trying to build broad coalitions to figure out how to best release these data. Some of it, we may not be able to release at all immediately. So I'm an archaeologist, I think, in really long time scales. As the data ages, it becomes less sensitive. So in some instances, if we hit something especially sensitive, we're not able to release these data for several years. From my perspective, that's still open sourcing. Although the best case scenario would be to release it immediately, obviously. Just out of curiosity, what might be a sensitive thing that you might uncover? Are we talking archaeological sensitive or are we talking ecological sensitive? It could be both, honestly. Or it can be, for example, it could be an indigenous site that when people don't want the location of that site released. It could be uh, the location of an uncontacted group of people, for example. And as you and many of your audience members probably know, of course, that the Amazon is one of the last places on Earth left where there are uncontacted people. And they are uncontacted because they, that's their desire. <laughs> you know, they wish to be uncontacted. I can't blame them sometimes, frankly. We need to honor that desire. And so we're developing ways to potentially ghost some of those really sensitive areas out of the data before it's released. In the same way that, for example, in the United States, the three debt program goes out in, in collaboration with indigenous groups, First Nations groups, the three dep ghosts out culturally sensitive sites from the data that they're releasing. So obviously when you start a project that's this big, I mean, you can't see all the challenges or you can't understand all the challenges before you start. But did, did all this kind of cultural back and forth and, and cultural challenges, did they come as a surprise to you? So if it was me starting this, I would be really focused on the, the technical challenges. Like how do we physically scan the, this massive geographic area? How do we get the data from one place to another place? How do we store it? How do we process it? I would have been really surprised by all the the sort of sensitivities around exposing this kind of data once it was collected. Yeah, I'm surprised by some of the things, but not totally blown over. And, and I can tell you why, because as an archaeologist, you know, I've run big projects internationally, especially in Mexico. And the hardest part of running a big archaeological project is not all of the technical challenges. It's actually not doing the excavation. It's not dealing with the artifacts. It's not collecting the data. Most of your time that you spend, and I always joke that, you know, now when I run a, a big archaeology project, I, I never do any archaeology. All I do is run around and, you know, deal with governmental permits, community permissions, getting housing, getting the right kind of peanut butter for students so that 
everybody's happy and they perform to their optimal ability in the field. When we're on these big projects, I don't do any archaeology. I actually have more fun visiting my friends' excavations because then I just get to hang out and actually, you know, do some archaeology. And some of our challenges that we have, again, just like the storage issue, you know, which also kind of surprised me, some of the biggest challenges we have are things that we wouldn't have expected, like dealing with vehicles in Mexico on an excavation is incredibly difficult. It's really, really difficult to rent cars for the kind of fieldwork that we do in Mexico. And it's expensive and it takes a lot of time and, and effort just to get the vehicles. In that sense, it didn't necessarily, the social side of it taking so much time didn't really surprise me, I guess. So let's say I gave you $20 million and I could wave my magic wand and we could go and scan the Amazon in its entirety tomorrow and we could put it into the Earth Archive and almost immediately make it publicly available. What, what kinds of problems do you think people w- would solve with this data or, or what kinds of questions do, do you think they would be asking? I think immediately we could demonstrate some really cool stuff for the Amazon. So for example, there's a debate among Amazonian scholars about how many people were in the Amazon at the time of European contact. And as you and probably most of your listeners know, immediately after Europeans arrived in the Americas, the indigenous populations were decimated by European-introduced disease. Some estimates are nine out of every 10 people, which is something that is so much worse. So when you think about it, it's something that, that it's a death rate that is so much incredibly higher than the pandemic death rate, than the COVID death rate. And yet look how disruptive COVID was. Can you imagine that on like a, it's so crazy that we don't even have an analogy for it, for that kind of death, nine out of 90% death rate. It's like Stephen King, the stand. That's the nearest analogy we have. So because of that, we don't actually know how many people were in the Amazon and we don't know what their environmental impact was. So there's a debate among Amazonian scholars about whether the Amazon is really an abandoned garden, which is what most archaeologists believe, myself included, or whether the Amazon was sort of lightly impacted by people, and it's largely a natural ecosystem, an ecosystem that existed without human impact for most of the time up to European contact. We could immediately resolve that. Boom. Done. We can see the archaeological sites on the ground. We can see the road networks. We can see the landscape features, terraces, fish ponds, all that sort of stuff. That debate would, in, would immediately be solved. And then that has some serious, serious implications for how we think about the Amazon and how we move forward with protecting it. We could also, of course, get intensely accurate measurements of deforestation. We could pair our high-resolution record with coarser records to get at a lot of you know, different questions about the historic nature of the deforestation, et cetera. We could look at changing water budgets. It would be the most accurate way to measure carbon, carbon budgets, and a whole host of other things. And then just to expand on that a little bit, we also anticipate that as computing power increases, as we're able to use AI and other kinds of techniques, people will be going back through these Earth Archive data asking questions that we can't imagine, and using techniques that we can't imagine. So there's also this whole host of synergies that are going to come together to do these kind of analytics that are just beyond sort of what we're able to sort of even think about now. 
Wow. Uh, thank you very much for walking us through that. So we've talked about the Amazon. Are there any other areas that would be maybe second, third, fourth on, on the list of, of areas that you really want to scan? We'd really like to do Central America, of course, would be amazing. Uh, there's a lot of scanning that's happening in the Maya region in Mexico, but there's a lot more that would need to happen there. But one of the areas that we're also want to focus on next, perhaps, once we get the Amazon scan going, is Africa. And we would love to do a discontinuous transect starting in Egypt and ending in South Africa down the, the eastern uh, part of the African continent. And that would be a, a massive undertaking. That would be mind-blowing, massive undertaking. Obviously, it wouldn't be a continuous transect. It would be discontinuous, and we'd sort of move back and forth a little bit east-west to take advantage of some of the most spectacular and most culturally and ecologically important areas. But that is a scan that we're starting to discuss and, and starting to plan a little bit for. What do you think this is going to look like when it's finished? Is it going to be an API that I can make calls up against and get down the data that I want? Is it going to be some sort of visual interface that I can zoom around in and look at? Is it going to be like a, a series of folders on a website you know, that are broken up into different sort of tiles that I can download the data? Do you, do you have a sort of vision for what the, the end interface is going to look like? Yeah, so we've been very, very lucky to be able to partner with a company called Voxel Maps. And Voxel Maps has this amazing interface, this amazing tech platform in which they've started with a voxel that is, starts at the, a voxel, of course, is a three-dimensional pixel. And they've started with a voxel that starts at the center of the earth and moves outward and encompasses the earth and beyond. Each of those voxels is nested and numbered individually. And they have a, a browser that allows you to look at three-dimensional data, four-dimensional really, because each voxel can hold unlimited amounts of time information. So it's actually, it's actually a four-dimensional platform. There's a web browser that will allow you to, to browse through the uh, LiDAR data, view it at a very high resolution, and which we're, which we're determining right now, and then grab an area and download it as probably as a loss file or perhaps something else. And so you'll be able to go through and look at it. And of course, a voxel environment looks a lot like the game of Minecraft. So it's, at, it's an absolutely incredible analytical space that we'll be able to take advantage of with voxel maps. I actually had the CEO of Voxel Maps on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. So I'll be sure and put a link in the show notes to that if people want to go and check that out. I just wanted to say that I am so struck by the scale of this project. The, the ambition here is, is almost mind-blowing. Do you ever suffer from imposter syndrome? Like, if it was me, I'd be like, who, who am I to start this project? Who am I to try and scan the entire surface of, of the earth? <laughs> yes, all the time. It's like, really, this is the scariest thing I've ever done. It could fall completely flat on its face. I don't think it will, but I'm all in. I just went for it because I think it is so, I just think we have to, it's so necessary and it makes so much sense to me. And it's something that we absolutely, I mean, we have to do this. It's still crazy to me that we have better map, three-dimensional maps of the moon than we do of our own planet. I mean, that's just mind-boggling. How can that be? I mean, I know how it is, but I mean, that's, yeah, but sometimes I, sometimes I get really, it is a little scary and I, and I am like, oh my, this is, this is stupid. I'm going to be like the laughing stock. I'm going to fall on my face. 
I'm going to have to go to Alaska and build a cabin and just live there forever. And, and cause it's going to be so embarrassing, but you know, I persevere. <laughs> I'm really pleased that you're persevering. I think this is an incredibly important project. There's a lot of really clever people listening to this podcast. Can they help in any way? Can they contribute in any way? And if so, what kind of help are you looking for? We're looking for all sorts of help. The most, the best help we can get right now is, is of financial nature. But if anybody has any ideas, they're more than, I, you know, we'd I'd love for them to contact us. They can go to the, the website, which is theearcharchive.com. We're going to have a massive virtual congress June 15th and 16th. And you can either go to the main website or you can go to the congress website, theearcharchivecongress.com. They can always contact me. My email's available on the, the main site. And then we are going to start a Kickstarter campaign in about two weeks, so probably toward the end of February. And those funds will go directly to the Amazon campaign. We're ready to start scanning in the Amazon. We have the permissions and the connections to start scanning in Brazil and Colombia. And we hope to do that by the middle of this summer, 2021. Of course, the COVID situation may force us to be delayed just a little bit. So I will definitely include all of those links and ways of contacting you in the show notes so people can find you there. Before I let you go, I just want to say thank you. Thank you very much for coming along on the podcast and telling us about what you're up to, how it's working, and what it might look like in the future. And thanks very much for doing this. I mean, you're taking on a massive task, and it's incredibly important, and it's going to have really wide-reaching cultural implications. And I, I really appreciate it. So thank you very much. Hey, Daniel, thank you. And thanks to all your listeners. And thanks for giving us the opportunity to uh, talk about the Earth Archive and promote it. And it was it was a lot of fun. You are more than welcome. Best of luck with the project. Thank you. Thanks again to my sponsor, Pictera. If you're interested in doing object detection and extraction at scale on image data sources, check them out. Like I mentioned at the start of the episode here, there will be a link in the show notes. But just in case you want to search for it yourself, it's P-I-C- so I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Chris Fisher from theeartharchive.com. Chris talked a lot about the, the Amazon and I wanted to mention a resource here that I'm sure some of you have heard of and that is Google Earth Engine. So if you go to the URL earthengine.google.com slash timelapse, you can see change happening. It's a pretty amazing resource, and I'm well aware that Google Earth Engine can do so much more than this. But if you are in doubt that change is happening, if you are in doubt that things are moving faster than perhaps what we imagine, go along to earthengine.google.com slash timelapse, and you'll see on the left-hand side, you'll see a whole bunch of sort of pre-selected areas. Click on one of them, and you can see how change has happened over the last 30 years. I believe it goes back 30 years. It's a really interesting resource, and if you're not familiar with it, it's well worth checking out. It's a real pleasure getting to talk to people like Chris, people that take on really ambitious projects, not because they believe they are the perfect candidate to lead the project, but because they see something that's broken and they decide to fix it. I think the, the kind of leadership that Chris and his colleagues are demonstrating through the Earth Archive project, I don't, I don't think it gets the attention that it deserves. When I asked Chris the question, like, do you ever suffer from imposter syndrome? You know, it was immediate and obvious. It was, yes, yes, I do. In the same sentence, he said, but I'm all in. 
I don't believe that Chris is all in because he believes that he is the perfect candidate for this project, the one, the only person that can solve this problem. I think he's all in because he sees an opportunity to make things better. I think he's all in because he sees a problem that needs to be fixed and it's more important than it, that it gets fixed than who does the fixing. Thank you very much for tuning in again this week. It's much appreciated. As always, you can reach out to me on social media. I'm most active on Twitter and LinkedIn. And of course, you can always email me. If you go to masscaping.com, you'll find a email form. You can sign up there. And yeah, that's a really great way for us to communicate together if you're interested. That's it from me. We'll talk again next week. Bye.